and welcome to episode 69 of Barefooting with Sierra. Nice. <laughs> I'm not even sure at all. This podcast is recorded on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral land of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Ojibwe, Nakota Sioux, and others for time immemorial. I also would like to acknowledge that this land is home to the Métis Nation of Alberta and that I'm a settler on this land. My name is Sierra Larson, better known as Barefoot Sierra. I'm a novelist, comic creator, and independent journalist. I currently use she, her, and they, them pronouns, and I've been living without shoes since 2010. I created this podcast to keep my audiences in touch with all of my projects, to talk about things I care about, and to interact with the awesome people in my various professional networks. I break this podcast up into four parts, novels, comics, journalism, and barefooting, each representing a different aspect of my creative professional life. And in each episode, I also interview a creative entrepreneur about their professional life. Let's get started. First up, novels. My New Year's resolution was to read one book from the Texas Band Books list each week. This week, I read New Kid by Jerry Craft. This book was absolutely targeted for the band list because it's a graphic novel about a black student's experiences with racism at a mostly white private school. Teachers keep calling him by other black students' names. Other students assume he's good at basketball and that he doesn't have a good home life based on his skin color, and he has an all-around hard time fitting in, especially because he would rather be at an art school. When I picked this book up at the bookstore, my nine-year-old told me that he has this book at his school and that he's already read it, as well as other books by the same author. We had a chat about the Texas Band book list, along with my brother, who's currently stationed in San Antonio, Texas, with the U.S. Navy. I feel like we all came away from that discussion with a better understanding of the attitudes surrounding anti-racist literature and the people actively suppressing it in Texas and elsewhere. New Kid is an excellent book, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Now for my interview with author Anya Lee Josephs, the author of Queen of It All. Hi, Anya. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Please tell the listeners a little about yourself, where you're from, and what you write. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be there. Be here. Here's where I am. Um, I, uh, I'm Anya. I'm a writer, director, social worker, educator. I live in New York City uh, with my cat, Sycorax, who is probably going to make an appearance on the podcast a little bit later. Um, I write all sorts of things, um, mostly speculative fiction, so science fiction and fantasy, um, for readers of all ages, my debut novel, Queen of All, which is the first in a young adult fantasy trilogy, um, came out in June from a small press, and I'm working on the sequels to that now. And when I'm not writing, I'm usually um, directing some plays. I do a lot of Shakespeare, um, seeing some plays, or going to social work grad school, which is what I, I do uh, as my day job, as it were. Social work is so important. Uh, so thank you for, for doing that. Very yeah. important. Um, probably, you know, getting a little personal here right out of the bat, but no, um, why social work? Why, why going that route? Why is that important to you? Yeah. So um, I ended up there kind of by accident, actually. Um, I majored in English as an undergraduate, loved it, thought I wanted to get a PhD in English, hated it. Um, the only part of my PhD program I really, really enjoyed was teaching. And so I went into the only teaching job I could find in New York without a master's, 
which was working with young adults in foster care who are working towards their college degrees. Um, and I loved that line of work. And even more than I loved working with that group of really brilliant, talented young people, I, I really enjoyed the social work aspects of the job, the mental health support and, and everything else. And I feel like, um, you know, I have some uh, personal experience with struggling with mental health myself um, and then seeing how much um, these really exceptional young people were being held back by not having access to the right kinds of, of mental health support um, and the many failures, frankly, of like our social work system as it stands. Um, I decided that's what I wanted my career to be. So I headed back to school. Excellent. That's really quite a unique path all over but, the place. Yeah. Yeah. My mom keeps telling me I need to get a PhD. I have a master's in, in British literature. I'm like, I just, there's nothing I care about enough to get a PhD. Do not, here's, here's some free advice for you and anyone who might be listening. Do not try to get a PhD in literature unless you are absolutely sure you can never be happy unless you get a PhD in literature. It's like pursuing a career in the arts. Only do it if it is the only way you can ever imagine yourself being truly happy. And yes, like I, I write, but I also work at a corporate job mm -hmm. pretty much as a career. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's all, it's all good, but yeah, I'm, very I'm strong, different. <laughs> I'm strongly pro day job. Um, I know that different people feel different ways about this. Um, for me, writing full-time is not like a career goal, um, I think I would go nuts with nobody but myself and my little computer and my little ideas in my head all day long. You know, I think having that um, outside kind of structure and that purpose and that connection to like the real world such as it is, is, is pretty invaluable. Yeah. And everybody's, everybody's going to be kind of different. Like there are people that absolutely it is life goals to be a full-time writer and mm -hmm. other people, they need that day job where they get out of the house and they interact with real adults other than just talking to their cat all day which I I did the uh work from home just right just talk to the cat thing for a few years and uh I like talking to adults now <laughs> it's 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 good yeah but so what kind of you know you told me before we started recording that your book has magic in it what kind of you know, elements from your life, have you been able to draw on to create your book? And, you know, just tell us a little about your products. Yeah. So, um, I've been working on this book since I was 12 years old. Um, it is sort of my lifelong passion project. Um, it draws really heavily on the books that I, uh, that I always loved when I was growing up. Um, you can see, I don't think your listeners will be able to see the very large collection of books that's sitting behind me as we record this. Um, I own about 600 fantasy novels. Um, and so uh, I was a very voracious reader as a, as a child and um, particularly kind of drawn to the stories of like the underdog hero who then develops the cool magic powers and gets to save the day. Um, and. I really resonated with that, or at least wished to resonate with it. 
Um, and so that, that was kind of the inspiration was that whole genre of like classic adventure fantasy. Um, but at least when I was growing up, when I was a kid, um, in the late nineties, early aughts, um, those books were also very limiting because even though they were all about protagonists who felt like they didn't fit in, um, if you actually looked at what kind of people the protagonists were, a lot of times they looked like less like me and more like the uh, other children who weren't always very nice to me. Um, they looked more like the thin, popular, straight, kind of like normative kids. And so I was really, really interested in like, I went looking for myself as the hero of one of these stories and I didn't find it. And I was like, well, I guess I have to write about it then. And when I started writing about it, like, I don't think I understood that, that was what I was trying to do, right? Like, I think as far as I got with understanding that this was about representation was like, the character's gonna look like me. She's gonna have black hair and a big nose. And like, that's gonna be it. Um, and as I grew up and as I, I matured my own understanding of myself and my identity and what's reflected in the book, that became much more, more complex. And it became very much like a coming out story and very much about um, what it feels like to be queer in what feels like a situation where you're surrounded by people who are not like you. And maybe you don't even have like the language to describe how you feel um, and what it feels like to feel like other people don't like your body and the way that it looks and the way that you are. So those became themes from my real life that were really kind of important. Um, in terms of writing the book. And then the other big piece of it that, that I've alluded to was the, the mental health piece, because um, it was, it, there's no like kind of diagnosis or even necessarily like diagnosable kind of behavior in the book. But my protagonist, Jenna, is very obviously someone who struggles substantially with anxiety, with feelings of not being as good as the other people around her. Um, she's not so much shy as she is nervous. Um, and I, you know, I was drawing very much from my own experiences with that as well. And with that not always being something you get to see in a fantasy book, even though, again, I think the kids who are, maybe I'm over extrapolating from my own experience, but I think the readers who are looking to take refuge in books usually are not the people who are feeling ready to rush out and confront every obstacle where it comes and not feeling so great about themselves all the time. And like they should get to, right? But they should also get to see that experience of struggling to feel that way represented in, in the books that they're, that they're turning to when they, when they need some, someone or something to turn to. Um, or at least, again, I'm, I'm extrapolating from my own experience, um, but that, that was very much kind of the sets of, um, of things that went into creating this book. I love all of that so much. The identity, just putting yourself into a book. I, I find it very difficult to find books that have, like you said, a main character that isn't a white straight dude and especially like I'm raising a mixed race child he mm -hmm. likes to see himself represented in books that doesn't happen 
mm-hmm. or if it does, it's very rare. We found a, a book recently called A Boy Like You. That's the first time I've ever seen a mixed race child in a children's book mm-hmm. ever. <laughs> it just doesn't yeah. happen. Like, so going out there and putting, you know, a, a, a book of what you want to see into the world. Like, I, I think that's amazing. And you also mentioned that, um, kind of the, the underdog, the, the underdog hero. I feel like sometimes as authors, we are the underdog heroes, especially those of us who who are queer, who don't fit into that gender binary. What can the publishing industry do better to make books and uh, publishing more accessible for authors who are gender divergent or for authors who have mental health struggles? Oh, easy. They should do everything different. Um, everything they're doing right now, they should change it. No, I'm, I'm joking, but only sort of. Um, uh, I, I think that um, I'll start with... Uh, also, I guess I'll start with the gender diversity because I think in some ways that's easier because I think that's something that can be fixed in the milieu that we have right now would be, you know taking the time to ask people's pronouns and then making sure you actually use them. Um, And then not marketing books as for boys or for girls Um, and looking for stories by gender diverse authors and marketing them to all sorts of readers um, and making sure that those titles get as much support as other titles do. I think that kind of set of things is possible in the framework that we kind of have now. The mental health piece is really harder because publishing as it's set up in in my experience is sort of profoundly inaccessible, especially to people with severe and persistent mental illness. Um, It is hard enough as someone with uh, depression, anxiety, any kind of mental health concern to navigate But for someone um, like myself or like some of the people I work with who has lifelong serious mental illness, um, it's really, really hard because uh, publishing is set up as a business that doesn't necessarily put a lot of regard towards how it treats authors. Um, And I'm thinking about just things as simple as the fact that you know, every agent has a different set of rules about what you can submit to them and a different set of rules about what rejection looks like. Maybe they'll get back to you right away. Maybe they'll never get back to you. Maybe they'll get back to you after a year. So if you're someone who struggles with, let's say like rejection sensitivity, it's not even just that you're gonna be facing a lot of rejection as a writer, which is hard enough. It's also like, what does that rejection even look like? And it's gonna come in all of these different forms that are really hard to cope with, really hard to prepare yourself for. Um, navigating all of the different rules. Um, for instance, I have some um, I have some challenges with like attention deficit and paying attention to small details. And so like when one person wants 50 pages and the next person wants three chapters and the next person wants 10,000 words. Like I, I, I can't keep that all straight in my head. I can't, I can try, but I am not likely to be successful. 
And so, um, you know, I think the, the inaccessibility is baked in so deeply that I don't know, I don't know a way around it. I think that um, one thing that would be helpful would be for larger publishers um, and especially larger booksellers to take a, a serious look at um, what they're doing to support other routes to publication. Because for a lot of us, um, the traditional publishing process is just not gonna be accessible. And so we have to look at other ways to get our books out there. Like my book is with a small non-traditional press. Um, and in many ways, that's because many parts of the traditional publishing process just weren't an option for me. Um, and going with that smaller publisher, having, first of all, being free from the wheel of rejection misery and the, uh, frankly, mental health disaster that that was for me, um, but also being able to have a little more control over the process, being able to ask for accommodations and get them right away because my editors are only working with a few writers at a time, stuff like that. Um, that's a way to make it more accessible is to look at a different model or to look at self-publishing, which I don't know as much about, um, or to take shorter fiction, which I also write, um, and which, you know, the process can be as simple as copy and paste your story into our online submission portal, and then we'll let you know, thumbs up or thumbs down, which is much, much simpler than the route to publishing a novel. I think as an industry taking all of those things more seriously um, and doing what we can to support them as sort of ideologically equal and equally important to the traditional route to publishing would be a really big step towards equity and equality. I think instead of traditional publishing, it's hard to imagine traditional publishing being able to successfully transform itself into a fully accessible model. And I'm not sure what full accessibility would even look like because different people have such different needs. I think the way forward for mental health accessibility might be to create more routes to what publishing success looks like, whether that's, you know, bookstores clearing space for independently published authors or large publishers sharing some of their resources. Um, I think that there, there are ways forward to kind of create other routes to success other than through those, the ever shrinking number of major publishers. Um, and that might be the route for expanded accessibility. I think the other thing, and this is something that traditional major publishers can do, um, is right now publishers, it's very hard to get in touch with anyone directly as a at a publishing company. And I know that's because if you work for a publishing company, you have people like trying to break into your house to put their manuscripts under your door. Like I, I understand that. Um, but in this era of like automated email sorting, please do have a way for people to get in touch with you if they so that if they need accommodations, um, they can at least they can at least ask the question. Um, and so I think I think that would be one really kind of straightforward step. Um, and I would also think, 
I would also ask pub publishers to just think hard about which books you're promoting and why, because something I've learned in publishing a book is that the number of copies the book sells is almost entirely dependent on how many copies the publisher expects it to sell. Um, because that kind of determines how many marketing dollars get put behind it. And that's the biggest factor in a book's success. Um, why are some books sort of picked to be successful? Unfortunately, I think it has a lot to do with market trends, um, which this is a sidebar, but I'm not sure how accurate those predictions ever are. So I'm not sure if it's even working, but what it's not often doing is giving uh giving a really diverse pool of authors who can tell a really diverse pool of stories, the chance to put those stories forward. Um, so I think that idea of, you know, supporting different routes, but also thinking about within the traditional publishing field, what can we do to put a more diverse group of authors all the way forward and really like put the weight of that big traditional publishing force behind some of those authors and give them the support that um, their, some of their counterparts have always been able to expect. Absolutely. That's a lot of good points there. Can't touch on all of them very succinctly because that's, that's the end of my lengthy monologue. <laughs> um, I, I like that you mentioned that um, a book kind of does as well as people expect it to. I mean, obviously, sometimes we might sell ourselves too high or too short, but that really reminds me. Um, I took a class by one of the same professors that Stephanie Meyer had in university, and it was a character building class. And he told us that Stephanie Meyer on her first day came to him and said, I'm going to write a best selling novel. And I want you to teach me how to do it because he used to be the acquisitions guy for Scholastic. So he knew what the trends were and, you know, whatever. But he's like, you know, it all has to do with character breakdown. I have a formula of, of what you can do. She, she was like, okay, give it to me. I'll write according to this formula. But then she pitched with this confidence of this is going to be a best-selling novel. And, you know, I, I have my thoughts about the writing quality, but it was successful. It sold for good or for bad. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I tell people this, um, I tell myself this sometimes when I'm, I'm sitting in front of my computer and I'm like, I'm a bad writer and this is a bad book and I'm doing a bad job, you know, that kind of speaking of accessibility, right? I mean, writing is really not a, not a career path that encourages you to move away from depressive, negative self-talk. Um, I think the hell is a good book anyway? I mean, what is the metric of success that a book has? Because if the metric of success for a book is a lot of people read it and love it, then Fifty Shades of Grey is one of the best books ever written. Because a lot of people, that's their favorite book. I have read it. I think it is a very bad book. <laughs> um, no offense to anyone listening who loves it, but I thought it was pretty bad. Um, and so, and a lot of my books that I love a lot of my favorite books on these here shelves are books that haven't gotten a lot of attention. I mean, I was uh, just reading this, this great series by um, Kate Elliott, great, like high fantasy series. Um, and I went to add it to my Goodreads and I was like, 
I don't know, it has like a couple hundred reviews. Like I was, I was shocked at how few people were like talking about this book that I just read and I think it's great. Um, and maybe it's because it's a high fantasy series by a woman. Um, and so, you know, that you, you have to ask yourself, what's your metric for success? I don't know that you, I don't know that you can sit down and say, I want to write a bestseller and you're going to be able to write a bestseller. But I think if you sit down and you're, if you're me and you sit down and you say, I'm going to write the book that speaks to the lonely 12 year old that I was and, and gives her, you know, something to cling to in this, in this difficult world. And that gives those, those, you know, sad, lonely, queer, fat little girls, like someone to look up to when they read, like, and then you write that book and then you like, it comes out and then, you know, six months later, you're looking at your sales report and you're going, well, why isn't it a bestseller? Um, that that's my own fault, right? Because I think when you sit down to write, you have to know what your goals are and no one book can be everything to one person or one career. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe you can do what Stephanie Meyer apparently did and like sit down and write a bestseller if that's what you want to do. Um, maybe you can sit down and write a book that's going to speak really deeply to a couple of people. Maybe you can write a book that's going to like fill a niche that doesn't otherwise exist. Maybe you can write a book that's going to make you happy. Um, but no book is going to be everything to all people. And I think that's a really, really important thing to remember throughout the publication process and particularly throughout the publication process, the, the question that I asked myself, um, when I was offered my contract by Gen Z and when I was, uh, trying to make the decision about whether or not I was going to take this, this contract that was on the table, really the question I asked myself was, what do you want this book to be? What is the point of trying to get it published? And the answer is, I think there's probably some sad little kids out there, um, some teenagers who feel really alone, some young adults who want to like look back and think about what that experience was like for them. I think there's some people out there who could like really use this book. And if it stays on my computer forever, um, it's not doing anybody any good, frankly, least of all me. Um, and if I take this deal, it's never going to be a New York number one, New York times bestseller, and it's not going to be in every bookstore in the country. And it is going to be able to get into some readers hands a little bit sooner than it will. If I, if I keep bashing my head against the wall of traditional publication until I'm 105 years old, um, and the market changes and suddenly it's the moment again. Right. And so that was, that was my decision. And, um, I mean, for me, it was the right decision. I wouldn't tell other people what to do, but I would say like, that's the way to look at the decision is look at what do you want the book to be? What do you want it to do in the world? And how do you, then how do you get there? Um, it also, I find helps with the imposter syndrome of publishing a book when you can be like, like I have um, countable measurable goals that I have like written down so that I can't then go back and change my mind later and be like, oh, I was number two on the New York Times bestseller list, but I wanted to be number one. Like I have to, I have to congratulate myself once I meet my milestone. That's not one of the milestones, but. I mean, if it makes it fantastic, but yeah, yeah know great. your goals. <laughs>
Well, it's been so great chatting with you, Anya. Uh, where can people connect with you on social media? Yeah, so you can um, you can find me on Twitter. That's probably the social media I use most at Anya underscore rights. That's A-N-Y-A underscore W-R-I-T-E-S. You can find me on Instagram at Anya underscore Lee, L-E-I-G-H. It's my middle name. Anya Rights was taken. Um, you can find my Facebook page at Anya Lee Josephs. Um, and you can uh, message me directly on, on any of those sites if you want to connect, if you want to chat. Um, and my book, Queen of All, is available anywhere that books are sold. Um, I... If, you, if you're able to, if you're interested, um, I do highly recommend getting it from your local independent bookstore or from bookshop.org, which will support your local independent bookstore if, if that's something that you're interested in doing. Um, and thank you so much. It's been so wonderful to chat with you. Now on to comments. Absolutely. Thanks again. Take care. My latest thank comic, The First care. Leaf to Fall, perfectly captures my reaction to autumn. As soon as pumpkin spice lattes appear in Starbucks, weather gets slightly chilly and the first leaf hits the ground, it's spooky season. Time for Halloween and pumpkin everything. Sisters! In comics news, Marvel released a press announcement on September 8th about Jeff the Land Shark, a super adorable little shark that can't help but remind me of Ole Miss football. The press release reads, Jeff the Landshark, everyone's favorite superhero sidekick, will steal the spotlight in a new series of variant covers. Arriving in October, these covers will feature Jeff teaming up with the likes of Captain Marvel, Captain America, and Shang-Chi. The three pieces are by Guruhiru, the artist behind Jeff's current misadventures in the It's Jeff Marvel Unlimited series, and now Fuji, known for their charming work on Marvel Meow. Jeff's recent appearance on Guruhiru's San Diego Comic-Con exclusive variant cover for Captain Marvel number 39 was a tremendous hit with attendees, and now more fans can get in on the craze with these three delightful new covers. Check out the Jeff the Landshark covers for Captain Marvel number 42 and Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings number 4 now, and keep an eye out next week for the reveal of the final Jeff the Landshark variant cover. For more information, visit marvel.com. Captain Marvel number 42 is available for sale beginning October 12th. Captain America, Symbol of Truth number 6, and Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings number 4 are both available for sale beginning October 9th. Author and historian Matt Klickstein has released a book telling the comprehensive history of San Diego Comic-Con. The Los Angeles book launch party sounds pretty epic, with a book signing followed by a screening of Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. That's some author clout goals right there. See You at San Diego, an oral history of Comic-Con, fandom, and the triumph of geek culture is available beginning September 8th. All right, next up is journalism. In current events, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or as most people call her, AOC, not only is on the GQ cover, but she also opened up to them about being raped and how it spurred her to want to change the world for the better and eventually run for office. People tell me I'm brave for speaking up about my mental health issues and surviving sexual assault, but to talk to GQ about it is another level of bravery entirely. I already had mad respect for AOC, and I have even more for her now. And I know that it's been like a lot of heavy news events lately with stabbings in Saskatchewan and Edmonton, and lots of people have had lots of feelings about Queen Elizabeth dying. When I started looking for news events to talk about in this episode, at first, I was only looking for positive things to talk about because things have been so heavy lately. But then I came across yet another story about a police shooting. We got to talk about it. 
In Allentown, Pennsylvania, three men were allegedly stealing catalytic converters off of vehicles. When police arrived, they fled in the vehicle. Police say they fired at the driver, Tavon Barnett, because he refused to comply with their demands and he was driving directly towards their car at a high speed. Correct me if I'm wrong, but don't police have like nail strips or something they can put down to pop tires and stop a vehicle instead of going straight for shooting someone? Yes, driving directly at someone is a dangerous situation, but how is shooting him going to solve it? In fact, it didn't. He still collided with the police vehicle. But for some reason, Berks County District Attorney John Adams determined that the police were justified in firing at Barnett. I mean, at least the district attorney looked into the case instead of a department internal investigation. But just, ugh, I'm really of the opinion that police resort to using guns because they have them so readily available. Sure, there are situations where police may need guns, but 99% of the time, I don't think they do. And so often there are solutions that would have worked more effectively than a gun. It's like the saying, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything is going to look like a nail. Police have become too reliant on guns, and I think the only solution is a system-wide restructuring. Last but not least, let's talk about barefooting. Finally, some, you know, good stuff, not heavy. <laughs> My barefoot adventures this week have mostly been errands, uh, but this morning I took a nice little walk down to the corner store for some snacks, and that was lovely. It's finally cool enough outside that I'm not drowning in sweat the second I step outside and the leaves are starting to change colors and I just love it. I took a photo while I walk and posted it on my Instagram at Sierra the Barefoot. In Barefoot News, a nonprofit group in Annapolis teamed up with Eastport Yacht Club to help low-income Black and Latino kids learn to sail, a sport that is almost exclusively limited to wealthy white people. I mean, I lived in Florida for five years. The only person I ever met who knew how to sail was the son of two Mayo Clinic doctors. It's expensive to own a sailboat and have a membership at the clubs and send your kids to sailing camp. And racism is a big factor. I was on a crew team, which is also a super expensive, super white sport. And there were a few Asian kids, a few Hispanic kids, dozens of white kids, and zero black kids on our school team. It was just something that black people didn't do by an unspoken social norm. So I think it's amazing that adults are paving a way to break both financial and racial barriers for these kids to learn this sport. CBS Baltimore did a story on two of the kids who learned to sail through this program this summer. The first part of the article reads, Barefoot and in borrowed life jackets, Jaden Hill and Rondell Franklin leaned back in their 12-foot dinghy, skimming alongside the sleek yachts and sightseeing boats of the Chesapeake Bay. Neither had sailed before this summer, nor been so close to the Naval Academy's rocky seawall, the fenced-in luxury homes, or the secluded private beaches of their unequal hometown. Yet as they let out their sails, turning back toward Annapolis, both boys looked as comfortable as if they were chilling on a couch. And isn't that a beautiful thing? I'm not naive enough to think things are as uncomplicated and picturesque for these kids as this article paints, and this program hasn't solved racism for them. But it's an amazing opportunity for them, and I'm so happy for them that they were able to learn to sail. Anyway, that's all for this episode. I'll be back in the next episode with an interview with professional ghostwriter Emily Crookston. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to sierrathebarefootgirl at gmail.com. Thank you to Legion X for my intro and outro music. You can find me on Twitter at Sierra Barefoot on Instagram at Sierra the Barefoot and on TikTok at Sierra is Barefoot. 
All of my books are available on Amazon and on my website, sierrathebarefootgirl.com. My Patreon for my comics is patreon.com slash possumpete. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. Until next time, this has been Barefooting with Sierra.